Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from... The Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport, one of my favorite airports, one of my great all-weather airports, and we'll be doing the show throughout from this airport. A lot of interesting people to talk about and to talk with. My next guest knows a little bit about this airport, because he happens to be the executive director and chief executive officer of the Metropolitan Airports Commission, Brian Ricks, how are you? I'm great, Peter. Welcome back. It's yeah, great to listen, have you back. You know here. I love coming here, and it's not just because of the Mall of America. Although I do, I have been known, I have been known to do a flyby to, to go shopping. That's great. That's you, great. But you know why? Because they ship. They do. They do. Yeah. They I mean, make it easy. They make it easy. Although yeah. we'd, we'd like you to keep coming back, keep I do. flying through our airport. I know. Well, that brings up the point. I grew up going to, well, I grew up in New York City, but when I went to college, I was going to, to Madison, Wisconsin, so a neighbor state. Uh, I was coming through here all the time on airlines like North Central, Northwest, Ozark, if you remember that out of St. Louis. Braniff. Bra- oh, yeah, well, now you're dating yourself. Uh, <laughs> yes, Braniff came here, yeah. 
I mean, you've, you've been, I mean, when you think about the history and the legacy of this airport, right? Because when I first heard it, was, this was an airport run by Northwest, right? Well, yeah, yes. 80%, they, yeah. they had 80% of the activity, yeah. and, and they certainly wanted to weigh in on, on what was going on here. So, yeah. tremendous influence. But it was an airport for most Americans that if they flew to, they were just connecting. Most of the time, they were right. flying over. But if you're coming here, it always struck me as an airport that actually worked. Yeah, works very well. I mean, especially in this climate, we we are um, have a tremendously efficient operation. Where where Delta's, as you know, a second largest hub. Delta's very pleased with the operation. It's it's uh, with with our business climate in the Twin Cities, with over you know seventeen Fortune five hundred companies. They are very pleased with that business travel and pleased with uh, how we operate this airport. Uh, most efficient, I think, most profitable hub of theirs in the country. Really? Well, let me ask you this, because I spent many days in Madison, Wisconsin with the layered look because of the weather. Right. One of your challenges here, and, and there's another airport that's like yours, and they do a great job as well, which is Salt Lake. I mean, you ask the guys at Salt Lake Airport, how many times a year do you close the airport because of weather, because of snow? And, and yet people are always going there to ski, right? It's very small. It is, and and we, you know, our our groups, our crews are, are dedicated. We have over a hundred pieces of, of snow removal equipment that are out working on the airfield. We just had eight or ten inches of snow last uh, Thursday and uh, Wednesday and Thursday, and so that uh, that challenges us. But they do a fantastic job. And unlike waiting, you know, on uh, highway road crews can wait and move snow after there's four or six inches. You don't we can't. You don't we, wait. It has to be gone. Uh, you, you can only have about an inch and a half, two inches of snow, and it has to be moved. But our crews do a fantastic job. They can open up one of our 10,000-foot runways in, in five or ten minutes. That's how quick they are. That's fast. It is. That's fast. Now, operationally, you've, you've improved in terms of the number of flights. We have. We, we have about uh, over 1,100 fl- daily flights, uh, currently 400,000 daily you know, Most people who are traveling, you know, they're only focused on their flight. Right. They don't realize you're over 1,000 flights a day. We are. So it's a very, very busy airport on a, on a relatively, well, not relatively, very small airfield. We, we only have about 3,500 acres here. So and no room to expand. And no, really no room to expand. We added a north-south runway back in 2005, and that helped. Uh, and that was a big deal. It was a big deal. I mean, I, th- I think that runway. When I, I originally started my career here back in uh, the mid-80s. Doing what? Uh, well, I was, I was involved in noise. I was involved in uh, the noise abatement department. And so... Um, so you're, you were Mr. Decibel. Well, <laughs> I know a lot about noise. I'll say yeah. that. Um, <laughs> but anyhow, they were when I left here in 1990 to go out to Denver and get involved in the Denver Airport Project, which had just broken ground, they were talking about... By the way, a, in those days, DIA stood for doesn't include airplanes. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I was at, the, I was at that airport Mayor for Wellington a year. Mayor Wellington-Webb. Yep. And I was out there, the, the airport that just couldn't open for a while. Yeah. And you had the baggage system that used to eat bags. You remember that one. I do remember that. That was a visual. And I was not involved in that project. Yeah. And then the runway that. started to sink at one point, right? Yeah. Uh, great. Now, that's a great airport. It's a fantastic airport. It fifth, is. Uh, fifth busiest in the country, I yeah, believe it is. Exactly. So, very, so very you really good. got you, you got down and dirty there before you came back here. I did. I did. It was a great learning experience. First major hub airport to be you know, developed since Dallas-Fort Worth back in 1978. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, that airport opened up what year? That airport opened up, so I was there from 90 to 96. It opened up in 1995. Right, and the reason why I'm bringing that up, it's the last new major airport opened in the United States in 23 years. That's right, and it took us about that long here in Minneapolis to build that north-south runway, which has been a tremendous improvement to our uh, capacity. But now you, you, you can't get any bigger. 
We can't. We're we're uh, we're limited. I mean, we obviously have freeways on all sides. We've got the river on on the east side as as well. So we do a very good job of maximizing capacity at this uh, at this airfield. Actually, in 2005, we were up to about 1,500 uh, takeoffs and landings a, a day. And the trend since then has been larger aircraft. Right. In less, yeah, in those uh, less days, operations. you had a lot of DC-9s and a lot of uh, 7.3s. Yeah, a- absolutely, and al- and also the prop aircraft. I mean, you remember the 19-seat, uh, you know, Jetstream aircraft, right. the Saab 340s, which were oh, they uh, were terrible passenger aircraft. Oh so those have those have been all and the ATRs. Out. Yeah, and the ATRs. So it's all regional jet, you know, and and larger, and uh, and plus so you've improved your international routes. You're you're going nonstop from Minnesota to where? Um, to a number of European uh, communities, to Iceland, to uh, to, and we've recently added Tokyo. Uh, additional flights to Haneda. Yes, yeah. um, and then. And by the way, Haneda is a great airport now. It's a fantastic. Uh, you airport, know, yeah. everybody thought Narita was the answer. Everybody now wants to get the hell out of Narita and go to go to Haneda. Right. right. A week ago, yeah. I started new service to Seoul. Um, Delta has put in a request for Shanghai as well out of here. I mean, the, the only uh, Asian destination we really had or connecting up or de- destination was Haneda. Now we've opened up Seoul. And, and you know, you mentioned Haneda. When Northwest was here, they depended on Narita. Narita. Because that was Project Fugu. Right. And that's how they were able to hub in that area. Every flight, that, it was an amazing scheduling thing, right? Every flight they had going to Tokyo from every different Northwest destination got in at the same time and had an hour and a half to turn everything right. and then go back out to Asia. Absolutely. It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And so Seoul is kind of that, uh, is part of that now, 80 different uh, connecting opportunities And by the in way, I, I'm sure you've been out there, that airport Beautiful. in Incheon? Beautiful. Unbelievable. Believe yeah. that is state of the art. It re- it really is. Terminal two is fantastic. Yeah. Fr- you probably noticed when you step off the airplane, it's just quiet. Yes, it's, it's really it's, it's different the, from it's the a little US scary. Airports. It's scary yeah. quiet. It's like yeah. did they evacuate the airport and right. not tell me? No, yeah. this is just the way it is. Yeah. yeah. So that's a that's a fantastic destination for us. Mexico City is coming online in June. Uh, Aer Lingus is going to be starting um, to uh, Ireland from here to Ireland to Dublin. Well, from well the here. good news is for people listening. You don't have to live in Minnesota to be able to fly out of it. It's it's a I look at it as a secret hub for most people that yeah. don't get it, right? right? Yeah. Um, and anytime I'm trying to do a, a transcon flight between New York and LA or New York and San Francisco, and either the fares are terrible or the availability is terrible, I'll look at Minnesota and go, I'll make a stop, and it works. Absolutely, it works well. Yeah, you can always rely on it. It's a great connecting connecting hub. So, what's your biggest challenge? Well, I think uh, I think for us, from a from a industry perspective, I think it's continued funding. I mean, I mean, you look at forecasts out there, and and they're saying that we're globally there's going to be 8.2 billion passengers flying. That's doubling from what it is now by uh, 2037. And so it's really about keeping up with the infrastructure demands. Right. Uh, we're we're in a 1.6 billion dollar infrastructure uh, program right now that uh, consists of a, a, a number of projects. New hotel opened uh, in, in July. I saw that, yep. Um, we're doing a new 5,000 space parking structure, and we have an operational improvements program that really is a complete remodeling of our, and expansion of ticketing, baggage, and vertical circulation. MSP, the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport. We're speaking with Brian Ricks, the executive director and big poobah here on all runways at all times. Airport revenue. My philosophy, now don't get mad at me, but my 
My philosophy is, you know, when I get up in the morning, I don't want to just go to the airport. I want to get through the airport. Mm -hmm. My mindset was that I didn't wake up in the morning to go shop at the airport, eat at the airport, dine at the airport, dance at the airport. The actual reality of the world we live in is I will be spending time at the airport. Right. It's inevitable. Right. right? So the models have changed, Mm -hmm. right? 25, 30 years ago, airports made money on landing fees and and some concession or rents, but that was about it. Mm -hmm. And parking, right? Right. Right. Today, it's retail and everybody wants Wi-Fi. And about 10 years ago, the biggest pet peeve I had was that every airport signed their own different contracts. And if you didn't have, if you didn't want to spend money for Wi-Fi, you couldn't get it. Right. Right. I mean, and people were just tearing their hair out. Now you have, thank God, free Wi-Fi. We call it complimentary Wi-Fi because we still pay for it, but the customer does not. So we Thank like that. Thank you. I'm, like I'm going to call it. I'm sorry. I'm calling it free Wi-Fi. <laughs> but you know what? It makes a difference. It does. It it does from and a you customer. Had, and you finally had to realize that, right? Because it was a negative touch point for your travelers. It, it really was. I remember when I was interviewing for the job here, and, and my wife and I, my wife came over with me, and we sat down as we were leaving, and she she said, "You got to go through three or four steps to get onto the Wi-Fi. What's what's going on?" Or it pay was, for, or pay for yeah. it. Yeah, and so we streamlined it. We made it complimentary and free. Our passenger <laughs> our passenger uh, scores, um, satisfaction scores have just increased substantially since then. And passenger levels of tension have gone down. Absolutely. Um, and pe- look, people don't change their lifestyle when they change their location. They want their Wi-Fi. They want their Wi-Fi. We want passengers to be happy because a happy passenger will spend more money in our in, in the terminal facility. Well, you just segue to my next subject, and that is retail. You changed that around. We have. It's as you were saying. I mean, you used to airports used to be considered just a utility, where you'd come to the airport, you'd get through your ticketing process, you'd you'd buy a bad cup of coffee and get on the plane and get out of there as quickly as possible. Yeah. With 9/11 and all the security changes. People are dwelling more in the in the terminal facilities, and we really fo- we really look at it uh, more as a hospitality. We're a hospitality industry because we want to provide the amenities that uh, individuals want when they're coming through here, and it's it's new concessions. It's it's local flavor, so yeah. that when when passengers, whether uh, origination origination or destination traffic, or if it's connecting passengers, um, that they get a sense of what Minnesota and the Twin Cities region is all about when they come through our facility. And the thing is, you upgraded the food. You did. We have substantially brought in local local venues. That I mean, there have used done to be two oxymorons in my business, right? Airline food and airport food. Right. Oxymorons. O- oxymorons. Airport, airline food is still probably in that category, but airport food has completely changed. It's completely changed. We've got great venues here now that are just fantastic. Your favorite place to eat? I think it's Stone Arch. They do a great job. They're just right below where, what kind where of we're food talking, are we talking here. About? It's it's a it's a variety of uh, it can be pub food. It can be a great uh, piece of salmon. And then we're bringing in a really high class. Uh, uh, a facility or restaurant, uh, which, which will be a very classy dining experience, and that will be here, I think, by the end of this year. Cool. So more time at the airport. More time at the airport. Spend time. People tell me that they wish they could be stranded longer here in Minneapolis. Oh, the local, stop. The local stop. community says that so they can spend more time visiting our shops and our, and our concessions. Okay, now look at me straight. Do you believe that? I do, because they get stuck <laughs> in other area airports that they just really don't enjoy. Oh, so, oh, basically, so you're winning by omission. We are. Okay. Absolutely. Or by default. <laughs> you're winning by default. But we're winning. We're, we are winning because we, we've been voted number one uh, airport in the in the country between 25 and 40 million passengers for the for the last three years in a row. And 
and let's talk about your passenger count because that's going nowhere but up. It is. It is. We've set record record numbers the last two years, just over thirty eight million. So a hundred over a hundred thousand passengers come through here on a daily basis. But again, it's one thing to boast about passenger numbers, but then you have to deliver, which is why you and I both like getting off the airport in Seoul, going, "Wow, this is cool." Absolutely. Because you're not you're not standing in a line. Exactly. Exactly. And and I think that's, you know, we are doing things. Uh, we're we're doing a lot of work around big data, trying to um, collect as much information, much uh, data that we possibly can to streamline that passenger experience to get people through the, the ticketing and TSA screening and really observe where people are dwelling so that we can, again, provide the amenities in those areas that uh, they want. And yet you're dealing with the terminal space you were di- you were given, right? You, you can't yeah. mess with that too much. What's, what's interesting about Minneapolis-St. Paul is this, this uh, building was built back in the early 60s. But unlike building a whole new airport uh, and spending millions and billions of, of, of dollars, we've been able to transform this facility and really keep up with what the uh, passenger demands are. Of course, you never were built in the 60s for the TSA. You were never built for, no. for security. And you've got to be able to build that into an existing footprint. Absolutely. That's a big challenge. It, it is, because you never know what you're going to find when you start tearing into some of these old buildings as, as well. But uh, they've, we've, our, our development team has done a fantastic job with it. Have you it. been able to improve? I mean, this is maybe a TSA issue, but from a design issue, have you been able to improve the passenger flow? We, we actually have. I mean, uh, we've, uh, we've implemented additional spaces in certain areas. Uh, uh, currently, we're just getting ready to upgrade uh, Concourse G, put another Delta Sky Club down in that area, working hand-in-hand with Delta to that to do that. So there's a number of areas that we've improved to help that along. Toto, I've a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Joining me now, a Minneapolis native, or a Minnesota native, Minnesota, I should say, a Minnesota yeah. native, who's the restaurant reviewer for the Minneapolis Star Tribune, Rick Nelson. How are you, sir? I'm well. Thanks well, for coming to Minnesota. Well, first of all, let's celebrate the fact that you have paper still. Yes, we have a thriving newspaper here in Minneapolis. I love it. I love it. And I'm going to give you my history of food in Minnesota. All right. Okay? Because I went to school in Wisconsin, so we're not too far apart. Exactly. When I was in school at Wisconsin, uh, sautéed was actually deep-fried. We had pizza, followed by pizza, followed by a fish fry or a fish boil, <laughs> right? That was it. Exactly. Things have changed. Things have changed a little Big bit. Big time. Yeah, no. Big time. I mean, even here at the airport. I mean, the food here at the airport's unbelievable now. It's terrific here, and it's, a, I think, a role model for airports for around the country. I mean, I going through the terminal today, and you're just looking around going, I had no idea. Even though I'm traveling all the time, right. you're not used to it. Because let me give you the old days at this airport. Mm-hmm. Guess the age of the mystery hot dog in the rotisserie. <laughs> I remember coming here as a kid because there was kind of a fancy restaurant that my family would come to so we could watch the planes take off. That was the only place where you could get something that wasn't, you know, out of a package. Yeah. And it was terrible. Yeah. But the plane, looking at the plane, look, yeah. anytime you can, I can watch planes take off, I'm a happy guy, <laughs> right? Whether I'm in them or watching them. Right. Right. But now let's talk about the food. Here, they've changed it radically. Radically. And one of the great things they've done is that they've reached out into the restaurant community here in the Twin Cities and they found vendors and restaurateurs and chefs and brought them here into 
to into the airport. Brands that are well that are recognized in Minnesota. In Minnesota, and some of them are doing kind of iconic Minnesota foods, and then some of them are just doing really delicious foods that just happen to be in Minnesota. Right, and those foods would be well. One a really good example is a place called the Blue Door Pub, which um, specializes in the Juicy Lucy, which is a made in Minnesota yeah, I've been hamburger. About, I've been right. warned about the Juicy Lucy. <laughs> uh, you have to lean forward to eat it. You do have to lean forward. So what it is, it's, 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 a, it. yeah, it's a very thick uh, beef patty that's been filled with cheese of some kind. Oh. Uh, and when you take the first bite in it, usually the cheese kind of bursts and usually drains out. Of and so you've got to have it kind of strategically placed. Okay, you know what this is? It's a BYOB. Bring your own bib. <laughs> exactly. No, but you know, I'm, I'm not a meat eater anymore. I stopped eating meat about 11 years ago, but mm. you're making me angry because that would be what I, if I went back to meat, I would have two of those. I have to tell you, they're delicious. It's, a, it's like, why didn't someone think of this before? You know, it's it makes a, a lot idea. of sense. Yeah, it really does. It's sort of like a grilled cheese sandwich, except that there's no, it's, it's covered by meat. Covered by beef, exactly. Yeah. And um, they do all kinds of variations on them, and they do them really well. They use really great beef. They have beautiful, you know, they make beautiful buns. Um, the cheese is first rate. It's a really terrific place to go. Okay, but that's really in the fast food area right. when you think about it. But we're now talking a few notch- notches up. Yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of other options you can do. I think, like, you know, one of the great um, uh, um, uh, lobster rolls in the Twin Cities, and you think lobster in, in the Twin Cities, but it's because of this airport. You know, we're a hub. And so you can fly anything in. You can fly anything in here and get a lobster from the East Coast in eight hours, and you have it on your table. And so there's a place called the Smack Shack in the North Loop in Minneapolis that goes through, you know, a 1,000 pounds of lobster a week. And uh, they have an outpost here at the airport, and if you have a hankering for a really amazing lobster roll, you should go there. Well, here's the thing. The locals in Minnesota would know about that. Right. But the people flying through here just need to know about it. They need to know that, yeah. And luckily, some of these places are in really uh, easy-to-find locations in the airport. There's a main concourse that's kind of a half-shopping mall, half-food um, concourse in a lot of these places around that concourse. You know, it's interesting when you try to think intuitively about airport design. When airports were first designed, mm-hmm. retail wasn't part of the deal because you didn't spend a lot of time at the right. airport. Thanks to our air traffic control system and thanks to uh, airports that got, got jammed, really. I mean, look at LaGuardia, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, all of a sudden, a lot of people were sitting around doing nothing. Right. Right? And opportunity then happens. Not by design, but because of circumstance. I mean, I look at the Charlotte airport. I used to laugh a lot because... They have rocking chairs there. And everybody says, oh, isn't that cute? I said, no, that means you're going to be here a while. Exactly. So as long as you're going to be there a while, you might as well eat something that's not the, the mystery hot dog. Right. It's a little unnerving to walk past a spa in an airport. Like, really? I'm going to be here long enough to have a spa treatment? But, you know, you're going to sometimes. Oh, listen, uh, I'm going to be uh, going to Qatar and mm-hmm. their airport, HIA. They don't just have a spa. They've got swimming pools. They've got... <laughs> No, they've got uh, unbelievable massage places. They've got uh, got bowling alleys. I mean, it's like, let's go to the airport. It becomes a destination. I love that. Yeah. See, your parents brought you out here when you were a kid (laughs) to watch planes. For the same thing, right? Now you can do the same thing, but you get to eat a lobster roll. Yeah. And and do you know do a couple of laps? I love that. Yeah, in, in Qatar. In Qatar, I don't think they have the pool here. <laughs> Not yet. I'm no. waiting for Minnesota to get the hockey rink at the airport. That's what I'm waiting for. Although you or the can, curling, or the curling area. Right. You can take a light rail connection to the Mall of America, which is you know two stops. I'm uh, shocked. To the west. I know. And uh, they're building a 250 million dollar water park. So maybe that little that swimming pool dream of yours will come true. Rick Nelson, stick with me. We got more coming up with Rick. All right. We know that the airports, if they're smart, have figured it out. And they become destinations in a way, mm-hmm. uh, whether you like it or not, right? Right. They are. 
But let's talk about the city as well. You know, uh, I think a lot of people have this misnomer about Minneapolis and St. Paul is this cold, and it is cold here in the winter, and there's nothing to do. No, we have a thriving culinary scene here along with a thriving art scene and, you know, a cultural scene. Um, frankly, there's not a lot to do in the winter, so we get out and we really enjoy our Let me guess, would that be year. drinking and eating? Drinking and eating. Yeah. It's a high priority. And baking. This is a great bakery scene. Oh, listen, that part I know. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> I love that. But here's the other thing. I discovered this because my newspaper column used to run in, in the uh, in the St. Paul paper. Right. The Basque food. I mean, all the, all the French food mm-hmm. in in, in St. Paul. There's a you know there's a beautiful tradition of all kinds of you know we're a city of immigrants, frankly, yeah. and so those kinds of populations grew up and made really amazing restaurants. One of my favorite stories is the uh, the. Um, uh, the number of Vietnamese and Hmong and Southeast Asians who moved here starting in the 1970s. Now, As all, Vietnam was falling apart. Right. And they came here and, of course, they, a lot of them opened restaurants because that's kind of a, a gateway uh, way for people to work. Now the children of those people are making some of the best restaurants in the Twin Cities. And I find that a really exciting. Um, for example. For example, uh, uh, two, I'll give you two. One in St. Paul is called Nong Bistro. It's one of my favorite places to dine in the Twin Cities. It's Vietnamese and French crossed with farm to table. So and by the way, Vietnamese French, that's, yeah, where they, that's where the French were, folks. Right. So that's, yeah. Exactly. And he's a really gifted chef. Uh, his name is ha- uh, Hai Trong. And um, I love going there for something as simple as a rice bowl with grilled chicken or the best pho in the Twin Cities or a beautiful pork riette. Um, it's an amazing restaurant. Um, my other suggestion is a really exciting place in northeast Minneapolis called Hai Hai, which, mean, it's, which means 22 in Vietnamese because it's a 22nd in university. It's in a former strip club called the 22. So, so it's, it's got it's, character. Yeah, it's got character. It's got character. And it's a, a Do they young, still have the pole? Right. And no, unfortunately oh. it doesn't. But the floor still has the dents from where the high heels you know, dug into the floor. <laughs> yeah, so it's a nice little look for it, right? Um, and it's this really great. Um, Wait a minute, you went in there looking for that, didn't uh, of you? Of course you I did. did. Okay. <laughs> I think I put it on Instagram. Uh, um, but it's got this really great vibe to it. And it's mostly about Southeast Asian street food. It's a young couple. They love to travel and they love to replicate the foods that they have across Vietnam and Thailand. And the bar is really great. They've got a sugarcane press, and they make these amazing sugarcane juice drinks. Um, it's, it's a, you have to go there if you're in the Twin Cities. Wow. Yeah. And by the way, uh, street food in Asia, I live for that. Yeah. That's, that's what I do. Right. And the rule of thumb, by the way, if you're going to Asia, as long as it's cooked, you can eat it. Mm-hmm. Seriously. Yeah, of uh, Out in the street. Right? It's the best. Yeah. It's the best. All right, so while we're on this subject, mm-hmm. okay, let's just say I've never been to Minneapolis or St. Paul, right? Right. And I'm saying, hey, Rick, where are we going for breakfast? Where are okay. we going? Well, we're, for me, if it's me, we're going to a place called Al's Breakfast, which has been around for almost 60 years. It's by the University of Minnesota. It's a little 13-seat diner. Um, I remember wait, once, wait, this is in Dinkytown? In Dinkytown. I love is, that. Which is like the that, Westwood of Al, uh, to UCLA, but, Dinkytown. When somebody hears the word <laughs> Dinkytown. Yeah, go ahead. And I remember the, uh, the late Wendell Anderson, who was a governor of Minnesota in the 1970s, he once told me that he took all the big shots to Al's, which was like one of my favorite memories ever. And you go there, and it's a little tiny diner, and there's this whole culture about how you get a seat, um, how you wait in line. You, no, you wait for your seat. Oh, you wait you for wait your seat. You wait for your seat. Yeah. And it's, you know, a it's got the old foot, counter? Oh, yeah. It's a 10-foot wide building, and um, people are jammed into it, and it has really phenomenal pancakes, amazing hash browns, you know, beautiful eggs benedict, etc. 
it's a, and it's and it's a wild. And is it very, only open for breakfast? Only open for breakfast, and it's a very un-Minnesota culture because you're really jammed in. You have to talk to your neighbors in Minnesota. God forbid very, you have to have a conversation. And in Minnesota, that's really asking for something. We're a very standoffish people here. Do you know what that comes from? <laughs> the Scandinavian roots. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Let's be aloof. Right. I know. Don't tell anybody too much about yourself. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but here's the good news, and this also applies to Wisconsin, where mm-hmm. I went to school. Not everybody talks, but you don't have to lock your door. True. Right. But that's the trade-off. Yeah. It's a great place to raise a family, as they say. Yeah. It, it, it's a great place <laughs> to raise a family. It is. All right. Now, we did breakfast. Yeah. Uh, lunch. So uh, for lunch, I would take you to uh, the American Swedish Institute in Minneapolis to their restaurant called Fika, which is this really extraordinary. We just talked about Scandinavia. Now yeah, we go to right. the American Swedish uh, You know, it's this extraordinary Let me guess. place. Meatballs. Meat. Well, of course, Swedish meatballs, but they also have you know beautiful gravlocks. They've got wonderful open-faced sandwiches. Anytime you have gravlocks with the honey mustard uh, or the dill, mm-hmm. I'm there. You're there, right? Yeah. And it's perfect. And they make beautiful breads. These really hearty Danish rye breads. It's this very contemporary setting, and it's next door to what people in the city call the castle, which was built by this Swedish publisher. And you can tour the institution afterwards. And this is a great celebration of Scandinavian culture here in Minneapolis. All right, so we got that one under control. And now dinner. Okay, so dinner. If you can't get into Demi, which is where I had dinner last night, um, which is Gavin Kaysen's new 20-seat restaurant, and it's a tasting course only op- opportunity. So basically, you sit there and you can't order from the menu. You're getting no, what you're, you're getting. getting. You're getting what you're getting, yeah. and uh, and it's an exceptional experience. And it, and it sounds really, uh, when you say tasting menu, it sounds really stuffy. Okay, and like, you know, I have your to ask a stupid is, question. Yeah, it's a 20-seat restaurant. Yes. How does he make money? Well. It's not inexpensive. That's how he makes money. <laughs> I think I paid about $180 a person last night for dinner. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. We're talking about more and more people traveling, not just to it, but through it every year. Minnesota is one of my favorite states. Most of my friends consider it a flyover state, mistakenly. I went to school in Wisconsin, so I'm a Badger, which means, of course, we love beating the Gophers, but <laughs> we won't talk about that here. I want to encourage all of you. People always say to me, where should we go this summer? I go, I'm going to tell you. Iowa, Indiana, Minnesota, Wisconsin. Go to the places you fly over. And also go to Chicago. You ask people if they've been to Chicago, and they say, yeah, and then you find out they just changed planes once at O'Hare. doesn't qualify. So a uh, person who's joining me now knows all about spending time in Minnesota. She's the editor in chief at Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine, otherwise known as Jane Hogan Olson. How are you? Hello, good. And I mean, do you love this state as much as I do? I really do. I'm born and raised, educated, raising my family here, and sometimes I think, am I ever going to live anywhere else? I'd like to think I might, but so far... Well, you know, they have an airport here. You could fly out. (laughs) I do. I do do that. I do do that. What's changed? I mean, when I first came here, Mm -hmm. I was a student at Wisconsin. I was also reporting for Newsweek. My column ran in the St. Paul Paul Piner, Press Dispatch, every Saturday, every wow. Sunday. But when I first came here, it was a different feeling. Absolutely. I mean, you didn't have a skyline. Right. You didn't have state-of-the-art food scene. You didn't have nightlife. 
I mean, zero. I mean, you had some theater, but you didn't have enough. In fact, you didn't have enough material to support a magazine. Well, we did, but not as dynamic as it is now. But now, <laughs> my God, I mean, radical, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, there is, I mean, having an international airport, I know we're at the airport, does make a difference. Um, but also, we have 17 or 18 Fortune 500 companies here, so we have a lot Well, it a makes a difference of, to them because they can get their people absolutely. in and out. Absolutely. And, but there's, um, there's a lot of money here. It's not depth of money you might see in some other more affluent cities, but there are people who are out and about and taking in dining and going to the theater and art scene and you, you need that you need everybody getting out and about and um, embracing the city to keep the city vibrant well your art scene and your theater scene is huge your museum here mm-hmm. I mean between the Walker Art Center which well, is the contemporary well, the, and then the Minneapolis Institute of Art right which is well the Walker I mean you can't miss it I mean no. th- that sculpture in the front I mean yeah yeah exactly amazing, right? right on the edge of downtown it's beautiful yeah yeah and of course uh, the, the 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 institute as well. Yes. But the theater scene here, right? Yep. It used to be if the Rolling Stones were on tour, they didn't necessarily stop here. Nope. You get every big act now. We do. And not only do we get every big act, we get also Neil Young came through this winter and it was when we were in the polar vortex and he had four consecutive nights at four different venues and he likes historic theaters and so he performed in in four different historic theaters to small very intimate crowd and this is the only place he did that you know what at the end of the day if you're looking for real you come to minnesota yep. seriously no i agree <laughs> well i'm from here and no, i think but it's I'm pretty telling real you this as a born and raised new yorker <laughs> yeah i love it if you want a reality check Go to Madison, Wisconsin. Yep. Go to Minneapolis, St. Paul. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're going to find it. Yep. And you're going to find something else which, um, and it, it sounds almost elitist to say, but you're going to find something else that you don't necessarily find everywhere else. You're going to find community. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely community. Um, we're a very literate city, too. We have a lot of small book publishers, and uh, people are involved with bookstores and getting to libraries. Independent and, bookstores. A, independent bookstores, most important. Yeah. Um, I, I think our Wild Rumpus, which is this darling little children's bookstore in South Minneapolis, there's a kid-sized door there's real animals that live there they were just named best independent bookstore in the country two years ago i love it um, so it's just those little fun little nuggets and let's face it because of weather you've had to become creative <laughs> yeah. right uh, there's a there's a uh, old wives tale that the reason we have so many patents in minnesota isn't just because of 3m and medtronic it's because all winter long what did all these people do they'd tinker in the garage and you'd tinker in the basement and out of that came a lot of intellectual property and patents we have a lot of patents here (laughs) i mean when you think about it you know the colder the thermometer the more opportunity you have to think Mm -hmm. the more opportunity you have to converse uh, and to collaborate you're just going to do it indoors the other thing i've seen change really in the last few years the last 10 years um is how we have major biking community here we've got uh, a lot of innovation going on with our cities for bike lanes but it doesn't stop in the winter and we have even more cross-country skiing and more ice hockey than ever i mean the u.s pond hockey tournament that's here that takes over lake nokomis anybody who's flying into the airport goes over lake nokomis and i don't know how many uh, uh ice rinks they have like 20 of them with this pond hockey tournament so we've really embraced our winter in in a way that i haven't seen i have to tell you as much as i think i know about the midwest i've never heard pond hockey yeah pond hockey um hockey players want to play on real ice they don't want to always play in an arena so getting on the ice and playing on how it used to be done is huge and so the pond hockey tournament is here have you done stories about that in your magazine oh yeah absolutely 
Do you have a pond hockey issue? Um, no, close. but when we had the Super Bowl here last year, yeah. um, what we have the Winter Carnival in St. Paul. We have um, the Pond Hockey Tournament. Uh, there's a, a new Minneapolis initiative tied in with our Lopit, which is our cross-country ski. They tied it all in together now, and it's one big winter festival in both cities, and it led up to the Super Bowl. So we, we last year, we kind of got our act together of making everything really um, You know what's interesting cohesive. about it? It's like the Olympics. The Olympics and the Super Bowl allow cities to kick themselves in the butt and get ready for one event that yep. only lasts, in one case, one weekend, yep. or in the Olympics, maybe two weeks. I talked to somebody who lives in Atlanta, and they said after going to our Super Bowl and then their Super Bowl this year, that when the Super Bowl is in a warm climate, it's just another warm city. And when people came here and actually went to the north for a Super Bowl, it was an experience. I mean, they were in a different place. And I do think that the Game of Thrones and all the north and Winterfell and Jon <laughs> Snow, we've been riding the jokes around Minneapolis and St. Paul about that. We're well, the kings of the north. But at least you have a dome stadium. Yes, yes, we do. That helped. Yeah, absolutely. They did the Super Bowl at MetLife Stadium in New York, and they were taking a risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Th- that could have been one. That's true. That could have been Green Bay. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it could have. It could have easily been Green Bay. <laughs> we have a beautiful stadium. Yes, you do. Yeah. What's the biggest surprise? We're almost out of time, but yep. what's the, the quickly the biggest surprise when people come here for the first time that they're not expecting? When they come in the warm months, they can't believe how green it is. It, it, people come and they go, it's so green. It's so dynamic. And all of our lakes and our rivers um, is something that people, we, 150 years ago, they didn't build around the lakes. It's so it's accessible to everybody. Riding along in my automobile, my baby beside me at the wheel, cruising and playing the radio, with no particular place to go. As many of you listen to the show know, I'm a firefighter in New York. I've been a volunteer since I'm 18. And I greatly believe that wherever you go in the world, one of the first places you should ever stop is the firehouse, simply because not only are they great guys and women, but they are great resources of information about their community. They've been in everybody's house. They've been in everybody's hotel. They've been in everybody's restaurant. They know where to go, and they even know where not to go. And uh, so, of course, the minute I landed at the airport here, where did I go? I went right to the firehouse, and I grabbed somebody there. She's a firefighter. She's she's also fire rescue, of course. Natalie Forrest, how are you? I'm great. I mean, great tour of the airport. Thank you for that. Great tour of your facilities. And I have to say, as a firefighter, they've got the most immaculate garage I've ever seen. I mean, unbelievable. It's like a new car showroom, I'm telling you. But, the, but what most people don't realize about airport firefighters, and Natalie and I were talking about this off mic, is in a given day, you guys get banged out a lot. It's not like the airport movies where there's one plane that's going to have an emergency landing every seven years. I mean, a light goes off in the cockpit, you know, like a warning light, that triggers a response from you. Absolutely. In any given day, like you said, we can have, let's say, up to 25 calls a day. We can have as few as, you know, a handful, five or six. But with that being said, we could be at a medical on a having a patient, um, let's just say a cardiac, having a heart attack. Passenger. A passenger or, a, or an airport employee, and at the same time or shortly after, we could be toned out for a, an aircraft emergency, which is obviously our primary reason that we're here. But it can be, like you said, a light in a cockpit, but it, sometimes they're very serious. I mean, flap issues, hydraulics, landing gear, smoke in the cabin. Right. So it's, and then you could get toned out for a car accident right after that or a structure fire. So we're always on our toes. You are. This morning you had a medical, I noticed. 
By the way, response time, of course, is always key, right? Absolutely. And you guys pride yourself on that. Absolutely. Um, it's, I mean, it's nothing to joke about, but as you know, firefighters, you find you have to find humor in what you do or you'd go crazy. Um, we have one of the fastest response times for cardiac emergencies and medicals in general, because if you think about it, if you're at home and a city department is responding, they have to get from their station all the way through town, navigate to find your house, where when we get dispatched, we can get to you because we're able to cross runways and taxiways with our fire trucks, um, our emergency vehicles. We can get there in under a minute sometimes. That's so. a, that's And that's critical huge. Um, we have the highest save rate in um, for people going into cardiac arrest in the country. So basically, if you're going to have a heart attack, MSP is the place to be. That's what they say. I know it's not a good statistic. No, but- I'll tell you something. I'll give you the statistic in Las Vegas. The biggest problem in Las Vegas was response time. Because of the traffic on the strip, they couldn't get to the casinos in time. So what the firefighters did in, in Las Vegas is they trained all the security guards at the casinos on CPR and how to operate the defibs. That's smart. And you know what? They have the best recovery rate in the United States uh, as a resort destination because they're, they're responding in less than 90 seconds. I believe it. Which it's, is amazing. It's huge. And if you look when you go around the terminal. You have you have all the, you, you have it. We're so lucky. We have AEDs all over in the terminal. Plus we have um, obviously the equipment that we bring up with us. Us, but if, if something is going to happen, we can get to you so quickly, and we have some of the best state-of-the-art medical equipment that's out there, so we're really lucky. So if you have response time plus equipment plus expertise, it's pretty good. Absolutely. And you think about traveling. It, like you said earlier, it's a stressful environment. Well, you know, it's, people don't often take their meds. Yep. They, they're, they're late. They're, they're, they're confused. They don't sleep. They don't eat. Right. It's almost they're dehi- like— They're dehydrated. That's huge. And— um, you know, it, it blows me away how many people don't take care of themselves when they're getting ready for a trip, um, especially people who don't travel a lot. They might have packed their meds in their check bag or they have a few cocktails and then take some medications. And, you know, it's you know, that brings up an interesting point that doesn't just apply to this airport. It applies to all airports. Short of putting breathalyzers at jetways. <laughs> right. Yep. I see people come out to the airport and they, any airport. And they just drink and drink and drink. And the worst thing I can imagine is somebody inebriated at 35,000 feet. Just be, and they were already drunk when they got on the plane. Oh, it's we deal with a lot of that. Um, way more than I ever realized. But, yes, a lot of our calls are alcohol-related, unfortunately. Yeah, and you're not alone. It's, it's, an airport, it's an airport-wide problem. I mean, just not just Minnesota. Yep, because, I mean, in addition to drinking too much, it causes them to fall. We have huge escalators. We have a lot of steps, as in any airport, moving walkways. So mix that with a few too many drinks. and. So I'm assuming, I mean, in my department in New York, at least one-third of our calls are, are medical. I'm assuming that's the case here, too. That is the case. Right. And the other third of our calls are automatic alarms that prove out to be not a problem. Sure. Right. It's just somebody left a pilot light on and, and then the other third are actually real fires. About the same here? Yeah, that's about the same. Yeah. We, you know, as we kind of chatted earlier, we have a unique setting out here is most of our buildings are commercial buildings where they have sprinklers in them. And that's the key. If you're listening to this program and you're thinking about staying in a hotel, when you check in, ask them if they have sprinklers. Because when you see these terrible fires, we report on this every single year on the news. The Grenville Towers fire in London or other big fires, even the fire that just happened, you know, last month in Notre Dame. I mean, I guarantee you that cathedral was not sprinkled. And even when they did all the renovations they didn't retrofit it right yeah if you don't have a sprinkler system and i'm speaking to you firefighter to firefighter 
There's hardly a fire department in the world that can effectively fight a fire above the sixth floor, especially if there are no sprinklers. Correct. I mean, it's not a good idea. Right. And some of the fire codes that drive me nuts, even though they're well-intentioned, uh, I was up in Lake Tahoe. We did the show up in Lake Tahoe, and I was with the fire chief, and a beautiful resort. It's, it's so gorgeous, right? But the way the fire codes are written, if I build a new hotel tomorrow, I've got to I've got to perform to those new codes, right? Yep. But if my family has owned the hotel for the last 80 years, and it was handed down from my grandfather to my father and my father to me, I don't have to retrofit. Yeah, it's that's scary. Wrong. And yeah. I don't think people, like you said, I don't think they realize it. You so would assume they would keep as up. travelers, you have a responsibility to yourself, not to mention everybody else, to at least ask them when you're making the reservation, are you up to code. Why wouldn't you want to ask that question? Absolutely. I think of it all the time when I travel. Yeah. I don't think I did prior to being a firefighter. So you're telling me MSP is up to code? Absolutely. Okay, I'm just double checking. <laughs> <laughs> What's the craziest calls you get? Oh man. Well, like I said, one of the greatest things about being an airport firefighter is that you you don't just train to be a, a truckie or on an engine company. You get trained on how to be how to operate um, a crash truck, which is what we respond to aircraft emergencies. You need to be able to successfully operate that truck you need to know how to pull a hand line off of an engine operate an engine you also need to be able to operate the rescue vehicles we have the mississippi and minnesota rivers plus lakes so we have an airboat that we do water and ice rescue for so I mean, we, I could go on for days with crazy calls, but we see it all, and I, that's why I love this department. Basically, never a dull moment. Never. With ten or over 100,000 passengers through here a day, it's a huge never. It, it's like the city that never sleeps, but in an airport version. is there. There's always people here, and so it, the crazy never stops. Hello, and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is... The flight attendants. Please look at one now. I learned something a long time ago when I was going to school in the University of Wisconsin, and that is we think of, of American Native Indians as the Southwest. We think of them uh, as, you know, the wild, wild west and cowboys and Indians. There are, I think, I may be wrong, but I think there are 11 independent Indian nations in the state of Wisconsin alone. And guess what? They're also in, in Minnesota. And joining me now is Jill Alberg-Yo, who's the Associate Curator of, Ner- of Native American Art at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. I mean, honestly, I, we've been propagandized. People don't think of Indians when they think of the Midwest, especially in Minnesota. Yeah, absolutely. And they also think of Indians as in the past, not contemporary people, as lawyers, as doctors, as um, people like you doing reporting. Of course. Yes. And the thing is, they are thriving. They're working. They're an economic force. And we're not just talking about casinos. That's correct. Yes. They they have as many jobs as any other people would um, across the United States. And yet, of course, when you talk about any kind of art, it's all about storytelling. Yes. Yes. And it's, that's how they tell the stories. Yes, especially so. Native American art is rich with so many deep stories. Such as? Oh, stories of survival, stories of resilience, stories of legacy, stories of power, stories of diplomacy, stories of influence, stories of struggle and um, independence. And what nations are we talking about here in Minnesota? Um, there are Dakota nations. Lakota too? Um, there are Lakota people yeah, here, yeah. but this is the homeland for the Dakota people, as well as Anishinaabe 
um, uh, otherwise known as the Ojibwe, as well as Ho-Chunk people. Well, Ho-Chunk is also Wisconsin, too. Yes, primarily. Yes. Yes. I, I spent so much time there when I did my story there about the about the Indian nations. It was, And I went to school there and I didn't know. Yes, you know? yes. Same. My children aren't being taught it in, right now, today. Amazing. Yes. And they're keeping the traditions alive. Absolutely. And they're creating new traditions every day. The biggest challenge I think we have, at least in our country, is, and I'm cer- certain other countries as well, is the loss of either historical knowledge or institutional knowledge mm-hmm. uh, or cultural knowledge mm-hmm. and how things are not necessarily always being handed down. Mm-hmm. That, that applies to language. Mm-hmm. It applies to it applies to ritual. Mm-hmm. Uh, it applies, to, and it also applies to art. Mm-hmm. Yes, I would say that, but I always love to give a counter narrative that things are always being created. Um, there's a there's a very common saying um, in Native American studies that, and especially Native American art, that everything has been contemporary. So something made in the 1700s was contemporary. Something made in 2019 is contemporary. You know what that means? Well, We're contemporary. <laughs> We're contemporaries. How long has the institute had Native American art? We've had Native American art since the early um, 20th century, but we really bolstered our collection in the 1990s. I'm going to suggest something, tell me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. that when you had it since the early 20th century, that was almost accidental. Yes, exactly. Yes. Just a few handful of pieces that people would bring from the Southwest, as you talked about, um, and bring them into the collection. But we went full force in the 1990s. Now it's intentional. Yes, absolutely. When you come to the Institute, what would be the biggest surprise for me in terms of that collection that I'm really not expecting to see? What we love to do is give the unexpected something like Jeffrey Gibson's um, punching bag that's fully beaded, fully um, full silk ribbon. How big is it? It is as big as a punching bag. Um, something like a wood sculpture made by George Morrison in the 1990s, somebody who was taught by the New York School with people like Franz Klein. So just opening up people's ideas that Native American art isn't static, isn't of the present, is a part of our, is a part of our story. Well, it's almost stereotypical to think that Native American art was either crude or, or just basic. Mm-hmm. It's, it's actually quite intricate. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Some uh, I've uh, I've heard artists say that some of the most beautiful Native American art is that that has the hardest finish. So, it may take say uh, of your hundred percent of time, ninety percent of that time is in the finishing technique, and that's what makes something very beautiful and enduring. Yes, amazing. How many days are you open a week? We are open. We are open six days a week. Um, and we are open late on Thursdays and Fridays until nine. Cool. Yes. Anybody can come. Yes. Admission. Yes. It's free. Even better. Yes, it's free. Um, it's some of our special exhibitions, like the one that's going to happen, Hearts of Our People, Native American Women Artists, um, that do have a fee. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs? Every time I come to the Midwest, which is, by the way, as often as I can come, and with with, uh, due respect to full disclosure, I went to school in Madison, Wisconsin, so I consider myself an unofficial Midwesterner, I'm always amazed at the opportunities that you can do 
and you can have with history that people don't necessarily understand the history here. Most people don't even come here. They fly over Minnesota. Um, and if they tell you that they've been here, they've probably changed planes at the airport. That doesn't count. My next guest knows a little bit about that because she's from the Minnesota History Center at the Minnesota Historical Society. Annie Johnson, how are you? Hello. Nice to be here. And nice to have you here. You know, when I was growing up, going to a museum was a big deal. But then again, it was intimidating because I couldn't touch anything. I couldn't hang out with anything. I could look through, through a glass window. And it got to the point where I got so... Uh, well, prejudiced by that in the wrong way, that I didn't want to go to museums anymore because I didn't feel I could I could do anything, right? That has changed, hasn't it? It definitely has changed. I think many museums, um, including ours, the Minnesota History Center, really look for ways to um, engage people in history, and not only in the things, the great collections that we have and the things that you get to see, but also recognizing that people do learn so much better through hands-on exploration well, it's um, really and conversation. About, yeah, conversation and connecting the dots. You know, you ask kids where food comes from, they tell you the store. I got a problem with that, right? And, and if you can tell the story and tell the history so that people understand the process, then they can understand where they are in their world today. Definitely. So tell me what you're doing at the museum that, that speaks to that. Sure. I think that we really try at the Minnesota History Center to tell the story of Minnesota, like you said, in a way that's engaging and um, interactive. We have so many approaches in telling not only Minnesota history, so everything from the Dakota and Ojibwa, Minnesota's indigenous communities, their history in the past and, and today. But, and we talked about this earlier in the show, and that is people don't realize that the Indian population, the American Native population in states like Minnesota and Wisconsin was substantial. I mean, people think it's just cowboys and Indians in the Southwest. You you have, I mean, Wisconsin has like 11 sovereign Indian states. People don't know this. Oh, we have, you know, a vibrant culture yeah. with, with those communities here. And in fact, um, historic Fort Snelling located at Bedote that's just across from the airport here is not only a site that the History Center runs that tells military history. Um, well, you have an amazing trade. national cemetery there. Yes, the National Cemetery. Um, it's also located at Bedote, which is a sacred site to the Dakota people, one of their sites of creation. So we, we try to tell the history that is known and more visible and the history that some most people don't know um, and, and complicate things a little bit. And All right, Annie, tell me something I don't know. Tell you something you don't know. Oh, about goodness. your history. About our history. Wow. So I think an example might be the historic Fort Snelling, as another example, um, the Dred Scott decision that led was one of the factors leading to the Civil War. Dred and Harriet Scott were a married couple who met at Fort Snelling, and they were enslaved by um, the surgeon there who was stationed there. And they ended up going to, they lived in several places throughout the country, and they ended up going to the Supreme Court to, or the case went to the Supreme Court to sue for their freedom, which was ultimately denied by the Supreme Court because they had lived in free places. Places. So Minnesota has connections with the Civil War and um, the history of slavery that many people don't know. And from the You're Not in Kansas Anymore department, you have a tornado exhibit. We do at the History Center. I think Minnesota is known for their weather, but oftentimes people just think it's blizzards all the time. <laughs> um, we definitely do have four seasons, uh, five if the joke goes Well, if you look at the map of the United States, you are part of Tornado Alley. We definitely are. And one of the key uh, signature experiences at the museum, we have a tornado basement that tells the story of the 1965 Fridley tornadoes um, here in the Twin Cities that uh, were quite devastating. But it's an interactive experience where kids and families and visitors get to go in and sit down. And in kind the of basement. Re in in the basement. basement, yes, and kind of be in this recreation of, of what that's like and tell a really emotional story. Because, let's face it, you want to feel alone real fast? 
Try being in the basement when the tornado's coming. Yeah. Right? Definitely. Have you ever done that? Oh, I think anyone. I grew up here in Minnesota. I think we all know what it's like to hear those sirens go off and have to take cover. Exactly. Now, you also have just a few petroglyphs. Yes. uh, Jeffers petroglyphs um, down in southwestern Minnesota are uh, 7,000-year-old rock carvings. Um, So, again, another really important site for our indigenous communities and a really lovely history. And and Minnesota has so many different landscapes, and that's our chance to really get out on the prairie and see something pretty special. When somebody, now you're originally from North Dakota. Well, I was born in North Dakota, but I always lived in Minnesota. So, but kind of you're still there, from but. North Dakota. <laughs> yes, Sorry, you yes. are. It's on my passport. Uh, Lovely see, state. There you go. But when people come to visit now, what's the first thing that the biggest surprise to them when they when they get here that they're not expecting to see? Sure, I think here in the Twin Cities, the the parks and the lakes I think are really important. Um, the amount of outdoor activities, especially if you're visiting here in uh, nice weather, but in the winter as well, we have things like the St. Paul Winter Carnival that is really a chance for Minnesotans to celebrate um, winter in all of its forms. I love that. I love how you say we celebrate winter. We have That's to. That's like celebrating weather. <laughs> <laughs> but you turned it into a celebration. Yes. When in doubt, have a party. Definitely. Exactly. But what about the food? Oh, the food is fantastic. And um, another exhibit that we've had at the museum recently is a partnership with the Somali Museum in Minnesota. And Minnesota, again, is not often known for being a very diverse place, but we do have uh, quite a lot of diversity here. And we've worked with the Somali Museum, and they've brought in a lot of uh, food for our programs, including um, sambusa, which are fantastic, um, kind of the Somali version of uh, samosas, which are so delicious and, um, and spicy. So we do eat spicy food up here, too. So bring some water. Yes. You always have to do a little bit of that. that. What's the, the biggest surprise exhibit you have at the center? Well, we're so excited. Um, we have an exhibit on First Avenue, Minnesota's main room, that is just uh, open now. So the iconic rock club, First Avenue, made famous to a lot of people as the place kind of where Prince, it was his signature place to perform and he filmed Purple Rain there and recorded that song off the album. And you have an exhibit with that? We do. They're cele- they're celebrating their 50th anniversary in 2020. So we worked with them to really tell the behind the scenes stories of that place. And there's just a little bit of music in that room perhaps? There's a lot of music in uh, in our exhibit, yeah. but for the real experience you should go to First Avenue and see a show live there. Absolutely. Annie Johnson from the Minnesota History Center at the Minnesota Historical Society. Thanks for coming. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. My next guest, columnist at the Star Tribune here in Minneapolis, but even better than that, the author of one of my favorite books, The Gallery of Regrettable Food. <laughs> I love it. I, it's, it reminds me of a, of a book I did once called Don't Go There, right. where I listed all the places in the world you should never go. James Lilacs, welcome to the show. This, it was a book about food that you, you ought not to eat from the 50s and 60s, and you won't find any of it here. If you really wanted to give people a taste of Minnesota culture in all of its glory, you would have a restaurant here that served jello embedded with some sort of wiggling carrots or the like, because they, they'll still serve that to you out in a church basement somewhere in the hinterlands. But here, no, at the airport, they've declined to give you those authentic Minnesota regrettable recipes. Yes, I know. Well, look, airport food was, by definition, regrettable for so many years. Forever. I remember first 
first when I started flying, you had one option at the airport, and it was always a hamburger that had been cooked about three years before, some fries that were soggy and as limp as could yes, be. Yes, they were. And brackish boiled coffee that would take the paint off the table. I, it, it was horrible. And now, of course, you can come here and have an Epicurean festival. So things are better. I'd say yeah. Okay. I'd say yeah. Now, the history of this airport is interesting as well. It is. Um, this started out, as far as I know, and I'm no historian in the matter, but I've done a little bit more than read Wikipedia. It used to be a raceway, a speedway, where people could come and ride those newfangled flivers fast and flip over and crash and the like, and eventually that went bust. But since there was already roads out here and reasonably straight lines for the cars, they thought, why not an airport? And so planes started to come here, and eventually it was called Wold Chamberlain after a couple of World War II fighters. And so that's when it, the, the aviation industry started to kick in. And in those early days, if you go back and look at the newspapers, which I do for a living in a hobby, you will find there's a crash about every other day somewhere. And here at the airport, which has got a remarkable safety record, in the early days, it was a little bit dodgy. I read a story about a fellow who was trying to set a, a, a duration record, which they did a lot in the 20s. How long can you stay up? So it'd be two guys. One guy would sleep in the back while the other flew. <laughs> I mean, imagine in some loud, clattering tin can rolling around the sky up there with a loud engine and the pistons going, and they'd still sleep, but they had to come down to get sandwiches and oil. So the guy makes a low pass to grab the sandwiches and the oil and the, and the bucket of oil on a, on a stick and a pail, pulls up a little too sharply, stalls, and it was one of those, well, guy was trying to set a record, didn't make it, too killed. And that was ordinary fare for the newspapers in the 20s. Wow. But not anymore. Not, no. This is a completely different operation. Lindbergh, by the way, would show up. And there's a story about Lindbergh taking up one of the oldest men in the city, a city founder who gave us our Walker Art Center and many other things, one of the richest men in the country. And at the end of his life, a month before he died, Lindbergh took him up to look down at this city, which was virtually nothing when he arrived, and now was this bustling metropolis of which we're so well, proud. Well, every year I try, actually every other year I go to the Oshkosh Air Show, mm -hmm. which is so amazing. Yep. And about two years ago, they said to me, hey, we've arranged for you to have a ride in a Ford Trimotor, right? Oh, okay. And I said, really? And they said, they brought it out of the museum and it still flies. <laughs> and you want to do it? I said, yeah. So here's the wild thing. My mother, before she died, came to me one day and she said, I got something I want to give you. And she gave me, it looked like an old road map that would accordion out. Mm -hmm. It's hard back on the front, but it was just like this. And what it was, and it said Transcontinental Air Transport on the cover. That was the predecessor to TWA. Mm -hmm. And it was a commemorative thing that they gave every passenger on the very first transcontinental flight that my grandfather was on. Wow. On the front of it, when it on accordion out, it was the map of the railroads because when they flew, they, were, they followed the tracks. Yep. On the back, it had my grandfather's name certifying that he'd been on the first transcontinental airlines flight, and it was signed by the pilot, Charles Lindbergh. That's fantastic. Wait. It had the tail number of the plane on it. Uh-huh. Right? Right. Now I go to Oshkosh. No. Same no. plane. Now, my grandfather flew it in 1929, mm -hmm. and I flew it. Two years ago in 2017. That's extraordinary. That on the same plane. So, what were the passenger conditions like in the inside? Because you see the it old was pictures. Wooden, it was yeah. beautiful wooden seats, mm -hmm. wainscoting, varnish, beautiful lamps with crystal. Right. It only held, I think, 14 passengers. Right. If you look at the old pictures in the yeah. old movies, it's about seven people, three of whom are smoking. Oh, they're all smoking. They're yeah. All, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So we have a Lindbergh connection there. But how has things? We know that things have changed here at the airport. Right. Things have also changed in Minnesota. Oh, well, a great deal. You can look back at, for example, the way the airport used to be in its early days, and we have a extensive record of it in 1970 that is available to anybody who turns on the television because the movie, Airport, the interiors, were shot here. So you get a wonderful... George Kennedy. Yes, yes. Uh, Joe Petroni, uh, Burt Lancaster. When you walk through the front doors of this airport, you're walking through the, the doors 
Dean Martin himself went through. And when I, when I tell people, <laughs> Helen Hayes once was ferried around these corridors, they gave you a blank look, and that is exactly who. But you can go back and see the architectural styles, the fashions, and the rest of it. At that time in 1970, this was still not the city it is now. Hadn't quite grown up and gotten the growth spurt that really came. You're making me feel very old. The movie Airport shot 49 years ago. I'm feeling a little bit corpuscular myself yeah. when, you, when you put it that way. Yeah. But at least... Uh, at least but I went to school with my friends, the Zucker Brothers, ah, who did Airplane. Airplane. Airplane, which of course is based on, uh, the, on the movies that Airport All those genres, up. yes. But in 1970, if you look downtown, there was one tall building with a little point in the top, the Fauché Tower. And yeah. now, if you look, there's this forest of skyscrapers that you can get to from here in the airport you know, reasonably quickly by our modern high-speed rail system. Which, by the way, most airports can't do because of the way the cities were designed. And but you you were able to do it. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, we had a we had a corridor that they could run it up because this was a grain center and all the grain came here and then it was milled and turned into flour and then had to be, go out on on railways as well. So we have these rail corridors that we can use, but it still takes a lot of political will to get it everywhere you want to go. But people who come to the airport here will want to go downtown or they'll want to go to the Mall of America, and for that, you know, the rail is is just perfect. And bottom line is, you can get there from here. You can. And it depends what you want to do. If you want to shop, I wouldn't go downtown because we had the same retail difficulties that a lot of cities do. But, it, <laughs> but it's still a beautiful place, and it has something that few American urban centers do. It's got a skyway system that connects all the building on the second floor. So you can walk around inside and, and marvel at this sort of like Venice-like arrangement where the bridges of the skyways take you from one piazza to the other. Uh, and I, as a, somebody who loves cities, I'd rather go walk around downtown Minneapolis and see our architecture than go to the mall and shop. But, yeah, of course, your family differences may, may vary. <laughs> when we were eight hours late for a flight, my wife and daughter said, we're going to the mall. And I, I'm the kind of guy who shows up at the airport nine hours ahead of time in case you something... You do? Ha- well, not nine, eight and a half, in case something happens. So the idea for me of leaving the airport to go to the mall and then come back... Uh, it was a little nerve-wracking. But no, when wife, the going gets tough, what happens? The tough go shopping. If, well, then my wife is very, very tough. She's also the kind to run down the jetway just as they're closing the door and the assumption that she'll be able to hurl herself in and file it, find a seat. And wait, I, and does she? Uh, no, because I unfortunately <laughs> make everybody go to the airport at a reasonable time, assuming traffic accidents, uh, tornadoes, marching bands going through TSA, all of the things that you think can get in the way of you getting on your plane. All right, so you're the one guy there sitting in the lounge tapping your toes because you got nothing to do. Oh, no, I'm not tapping my toes. I'm relaxed because I'm here. Uh, this, the great thing about this airport is that you don't have to walk around and try to find an outlet, which in some places, as you know, there's, you know you'll have a guy camped out by an outlet with a knife between his teeth guarding this resource. <laughs> and usually sitting on the floor because yeah, that's right. where he used to plug the vacuum machines at night. Precisely. Yeah, yeah. Here, there are all kinds of USB and, and power outlets. So... Whether or not they work, I don't know, but you feel good when you plug it in. So I love to get here. If I've got three hours to read and listen and cogitate and watch everything, that's fine. But people like me always marry people who get there at the last possible moment. This is an absolute truth in human relations. I don't know what it's, you know, those of us who want to get there early, see the excitement and the, you know, the, the vivacity of the, of the person who wants to get there at the last minute. And they like the stability that we provide. So I guarantee you here at the airport, there's innumerable couples who had the argument before they got here. Why do we have to go so early? Well, there's another argument too. What's that? I'll tell you the story. And it, it's different dynamics. And this is clockwork. You can mm-hmm. tell you you can tell time by this. Okay, mm-hmm. no matter what time we're leaving, no matter where we're going, my girlfriend will wait until they're closing the door to the jetway mm-hmm. and go. 
Oh, I got to go to the bathroom. Ah! Yes, of course. I mean, it just, it, it's, yep. uh, it's gotten to the point now where I'm going, okay, you can go now because I know she's going to pull it, right? And <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's just it's just the way it is. Perhaps, is she here with you on this, on this trip? No, she's not. Okay, well, that's her, that's her loss because I usually don't say this about a lot of public facilities, but we have some of the most beautiful bathrooms you're going to find in, a, in an airport. Do you know, I'm not making this, well, you know, you won an award for it. Mm-hmm. You won an award for the, for the cleanest airport bathrooms in the United States, I believe. And that's no small thing because we've all been to those airports where all of a sudden you learn to manipulate everything with your elbows. You know, you can undo your zipper with an elbow because the place is so yeah. <laughs> Here, in true Minnesota fashion, it is spotless and antiseptic and nice. Yeah, and they've kept it up that way. But beautiful. I mean, they have these murals and these mosaics that make you feel as though you're entering a work of art. How many times do you go to use a lavatory? All right, so tell me the truth. You get to the airport early so you can appreciate the bathroom. I I visit them terminal by terminal, yes. I make a little (laughs) peregrination through them to see what's been upgraded. We've been talking with James Lilacs from the Star Tribune, the author of The Gallery of Regrettable Food, and his love affair with the bathrooms here at the airport. I wouldn't put it quite that way, but it's better than a love affair in the bathrooms at the Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport. Hey, whatever works. You know, the, the thing is, if you go to some places, some airports, they always seem to be perpetually under construction, right? And this is this is one of those. But, so, it's, but look, airports and hotels are by definition always under construction. You can't go to a hotel that's not in some form of renovation where they've closed off either a wing or a floor. In fact, my advice to people, I'll just say it right now, is before you ever get your hotel key, no matter what, where you've reserved a hotel room, when you're at that front desk, before they hand you the key saying, could you just do me a favor and tell me how close is my room to the construction? Right. And because, and that'll help you because otherwise you get the jackhammer suite. Mm-hmm. And of course, the ambient uh, asbestos wafting through the place as well. Yeah. Not here. I mean, they've recently done some work down in the concourse t- uh, to rearrange the food area. And it, sometimes I come here and I think, have I not been to my airport in two years? Or is it have they reconfigured everything in the course of a fortnight? But it's always better. There's always something more interesting and more better. A lot of airports, you, you go there and year after year after year, they bear the same miserable, you know, 70s accoutrements and just the, the general state. And you think, are they never, ever going to change this place? Then, of course, when you do go there, and it's all under construction, then you're angry at them for inconveniencing you and making you sit through this. So we're never, we're, I mean, we're never satisfied when it comes right, well, to in the, Well, let's, let's stay on that theme of never being satisfied. Is there one thing at this airport you still hate? Oh, gosh, you're making me... Because uh, there's a lot of things to like I'm, about it, but... Minnesotans don't say that we hate anything. We just simply say, well, that's different. And if there's anything that's... <laughs> if there's anything that's different. different, it might be the scrum of having to pick somebody up or get picked up down there. I mean, that's never good at any airport, right? If you're being picked up by a car, that car has to fight its way through the herd of the others. Yeah, but I have a suggestion for you. This is how I do it. That would be. Okay. I haven't checked a bag in nine years, okay? Right. There are only two kinds of airline bags, carry on and lost. You with me? Okay, now... Yes. Let's move on. I completely disobey all airport signage. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to go to the airport in the morning for a flight, mm-hmm. I don't go to departures. I go to arrivals. There's no traffic there. Nobody's arriving at 7 in the morning. Right. There's no line. I haven't checked a bag. I don't have to check in. I put up my boarding pass the night before. I just take the escalator up, go through security. I save a lot of time. When I arrive, there's no way I'm going to the refugee center known as arrivals. Right. That's screaming babies, dogs, police, and crazy people, right? Mm-hmm. I go to departures, and my friends pick me up there. There's well, nobody there. it is possible. You can do that if, for example, you want to to fight with the guards who are there, all of whom used to work for the Stasi in the East, <laughs> East Germany when they dissolved
involved the Soviet Empire. A lot of them took up work here. They will keep you from going up those stairs. Sir, you can't. But there's a way to do it. I mean, you go through a tunnel around there, up an escalator, take an elevator, get on a parasail, go down to the main level. There's an, I mean, there's, you can do what you've done. However, most people don't want to fight that. Most people just say, pick me up at gates or, you know, at, at, at whatever. And that's what, and so you have all of these cars demonstrating, shall we say, not a devotion to the common humanity, but an individuality purpose that really kind of gets all backed up. So I'd fix that, but it's not something germane to this place. I might fix the distances because sometimes it takes a while to get to another gate, but this place is not like, oh, Denver, where you have to take Amtrak to get from one side of the place to the other. It's, I mean, so what, you know, well, if look, I could fix anything. Design, let, me, let me put it this way. People who design airports mm-hmm. should never be paid for their work until they've actually had to go through one. They weren't built for people. They were built for airplanes. Mm-hmm. There's a different way to do it. You take a look at the Delta Terminal in New York at Kennedy. Right. It's called the New Terminal. Mm-hmm. It's the Bataan Death March to go from Gate 45 to Baggage Claim. You might as well bring a copy of War and Peace and read it. I mean, you're not going anywhere. Oh, I know the feeling. You have to leave a trail of, of breadcrumbs in case somebody can find you and have a pouch of pemmican on your sides in case you, you know, right. need food but along the, the journey. But the distances here aren't as great as New York. They're, it's it's no, manageable. No, absolutely not. But when you mention New York, you mentioned LaGuardia. It's, it's a shame that we don't have um, airports as beautiful as the terminal at LaGuardia, or not LaGuardia, but at... Uh, but please. No, please, yeah, I know, well, I'm sorry. Where was that? What going? was I talking about? JFK, I mean, that great uh, soaring uh, uh, TWA... Which is now turning into a hotel. Of course, it, what isn't? There's, it, it's almost impossible to do that these days because the sight lines to airports, are they're surrounded by massive parking ramps, and you don't have that jewel sitting in the middle of the prairie like you used to do. But I wish there's a little bit more exterior beauty to give you a sense of... Well, even Dulles, for example, concrete as it is, has a certain visual lift to it that you don't find. It has a visual lift to it, but I hate the airport. Oh, it's a, it's it's. I hate that airport, and those people movers. I mean, yeah. please, even George Jetson would have killed them. Those strange mobile lounges, you mean? That's what, you, yes, you, those you, mobile lounges. Where you get in, and you think, I had I had one of those in Paris where they put us on a bus and then they drove us to the other side of France, and right. then we had to get off. And the only good thing about that was that you walked upstairs. And so my daughter, who was 14 or 15 at the time, had the experience of being in Paris and walking up the stairs to get on the plane, feeling like, you know, a, a celebrity who was waving to the paparazzi and exactly. the beloved fans. And I liked that. So if they could incorporate a little bit more of that old-style glamour, I'd be happy. Well, without listen, this I go back to the days of North Central Airlines. You didn't ah. have a jetway. You went up the stairs. Right. That was it. Yeah, and we romanticized those days because we think that everybody was sitting there in a suit and tie and behaving themselves. And they probably were dressed that way. Well, maybe the food was a little... Was no, it okay. wasn't. Yeah, no, it wasn't. I know, I know. No. I've seen the recipes. No. But you have to remember that everything absolutely stunk of Winston's. That, it, that everything you got off oh the plane... Oh, my God. If you weren't a smoker when you got on the plane, you were a smoker when you got <laughs> off. Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. My next guest runs something that most people don't know about. Uh, because most people who will be coming to the airport here might not even know it exists. She's the executive director at the Airport Foundation of MSP. Jana Wester, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for so, having me. Why does an airport need a foundation and what do you do? 
you know, it's a funny question. I, I started this job 20 years ago, and I first saw back in the days when there was ads in the paper for job, and I saw this job, and I asked myself the same question. I said, why would an international airport need a foundation? And um, have Back in came, the days of uh, what? Let's see. Northwest. Northwest. North Central. Yes. Ozark. Pre-9-11. Yeah. Yes, it was a different world then. Um, but came to learn that um, it's a wonderful business model here, um, and I should say that we are the only airport foundation in the world, so it's a very unique business That's model. That's why I had to ask the question. I've never heard of an airport foundation. Yeah, it is. But it, um, it, we are able to provide programs and services that really enhance a travel experience for people here. But you're not like greeters. I mean, you... you oh, well, well... But you are, but you're are. more than that, yes. We are, yeah. yes, yeah. So we have um, multiple programs that we run here at the, at the airport. Um, and we've got volunteers, and um, and they do greet people, but that's part of what enhances the right. experience. But it's more than that. Oh, it's much more than that, and it's grown. I mean, it wasn't this big when I first got here, but the foundation has grown along with the airport. Because I remember Traveler's Aid, or right there used to always be a Traveler's mm-hmm. Aid desk somewhere, and, and it was always be, and manned, and it was always manned by my grandmother. I want you to know that <laughs> it was always manned by my grandmother. It was like, hello. <laughs> And it's right? still yes, and that's what it was, and it was here. And it was cute. It's it's wonderful, yeah. you know. And 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 so that was Travelers Aid here yeah. many many years ago, and in a lot of airports around the country. What happened? And there still is a Travelers Aid organization, I should say, but they focus more on trains and other sorts of sure. transportation because airports are a big world. It's a big thing to handle. And so, um, in the early '90s, um, Travelers Aid backed out of this airport, and the foundation stepped in and took over overrunning the and the program and change the name to Travelers Assistance. Right. And then of course you've expanded to include other things, including arts and culture. Oh yes, yes. Well, and I should say that we don't just have um, human volunteers anymore. We now have dogs. Oh let me tell you about the dogs. I know about the dogs. I mean I almost missed my flight because of one of your dogs. Because you were loving it. I so was much. loving it. Oh. I was petting it. I know it's kind know. of the downside to yeah, this program. I bet people have missed their flights because they were cuddling with their dogs. I'm well, telling I you. hope not. But if they do, then we have other volunteers that would run in and hold <laughs> that flight. <laughs> Separate the passenger from the dog. Yes. Yeah. No, but you know, people realize that you know an airport can be a stressful environment. Uh, not can be is uh, whether you're a first-time flyer or you know or a road warrior like me, and bringing these dogs. And by the way, there are some airports. I used to know which had miniature horses show up. Yes. Yes. I, might, I think Cincinnati. I may be wrong. But, I mean, there's a miniature horse at the airport. It does slow you down when you go, and ninny, ninny, ninny. And there's, you but, know. but what's so bad about being slowed down at an airport? I love that idea. I know, and that's Unless what we're trying to do. Unless the airport intentionally slows you down for other reasons that have nothing to yes, do with the airport. beyond your control. Like yeah. my plane being canceled today. <laughs> Right, but we do want to create these memorable experiences for people in the airport. Yeah, and so airports tend to be a little competitive with each other, and you want to be the airport of choice for people if they have a choice. And the other thing, you know, you talk about arts and culture. An airport is a perfect opportunity to display art. It's a perfect opportunity to, to display new artists, yes. local artists, right? Yeah, and so so the goal of our arts and pro, uh, culture program, and many airports do have arts programs, right. I should say. But, but can I tell you my idea of the arts program at most airports? Seven year old kids drawing pictures of planes. That's the way it used to be. Come on. It used to be. be. And now it's different. 
It is different. It is different. Nothing against and the now, seven-year-old kids. It's cute. Yeah. Right? yeah. But art is art is part of public commissioned art now. Yeah. And most airports and ours is no different. Have a do you work with local museums in the area? We do. Yeah. We do. And what we like to do is give back to the community through our arts program. So we provide spaces that regional arts groups can showcase their talents, and that creates those memorable experiences. Can for I our give passengers. you an idea for an art idea? Well, Maybe? no guarantee we're going to do it, but yes. Okay, here it comes. Yes. It is almost by definition that at some point in your life at an airport, you're going to get delayed. It's, it's, it could be weather, it could be mechanical, whatever. Have a program with, with, right, so that you come up with paper and artist materials so that people draw their delay experiences at the airport and have a, and have a display about it. And they'll have such a great sense of humor about it. What I did during my delay. And then do we have to display that art? If you don't, I'm going to be very upset. <laughs> You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.